0: Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome.
1: This is ED ECMO. All right, ED ECMO. It is Zach Shiner. It is December 2018, and Reanimate is almost upon us. Reanimate 6, January, end of January, January 31st, uh, February 1st. It is sold out to physicians. We have a long waiting list. I apologize for that. But uh, Reanimate 7 is coming. We will get you that information soon. Uh, Additionally, we have nursing spots that are a few left, and we have a few transport spots. We opened up a new edition this year, which is going to be fantastic on how to transport patients, getting you specialized knowledge at Reanimate. You get all the usual uh, education. You get... Uh, Scott Weingar, You get Joe Debose and Bob Bartlett this year. A- Amy Hackman, Zaff, Jim Manning, Chris, Joe, myself. All the usual suspects are here. But you will get additional education on transport, so check it out. It's the end of January in San Diego. It is beautiful here. This month, I have got two people that we're interviewing. One is Leon Adelman uh, out of Emory and now in Chicago. He is teaching the section at Reanimate. So you are going to hear him at Reanimate for how transport goes. And secondly, I've got Michael Broman, maybe the world's most experienced ECMO transport. He has well published and he is out of Karolinska in Sweden. And we are going to make that into the B section of this podcast, two separate ones. So with that, let's dive in Leon Edelman.
0: Yeah, sure. So um, I uh, did emergency medicine residency, uh, happy to uh, finish over at University of Nevada in Las Vegas, uh, and then actually went down the anesthesia critical care track over at uh, Emory in Atlanta, did a two-year fellowship there, and uh, you know was lucky enough there to get quite a bit of exposure with extracorporeal support and uh, a transport program in, in, in particular. So um, it, was a, it was a pretty great experience out there. Um, we would typically ride along with the crews whenever there's you know, any sort of transport across facilities or if we were going off-site to uh, cannulate, throw someone on, ex support. support. Um, got some experience going by ground, by air, and uh, I really got to know a lot of the, the, the medics and the nurses that work the transport runs with us. Fantastic, fantastic. So when we start
1: even kind of getting into the subject, I feel like the the first thing is is that there's a disconnect, right? There's a disconnect between the people who are transporting it and um, all of us in the ER and the ICU that are taking care of it. What's your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I, I completely uh, completely agree with that. It's it's a bit of two different worlds, and uh, takes a little finesse, I think, to try to combine the two. Um, you know, we're used to excorporeal support in the ICU. You've got you know an RT probably sitting at bedside. You've got one or two nurses that are checking every fifteen minutes. Uh, if you're at an academic site, you've got med students, residents, every consultant. You know, corporate wants to be there. Everyone wants to mm-hmm. be part of the show, uh, and the patients become you know pretty you know high maintenance, of course, but but also a little bit of the pride of the unit, especially in you know a smaller site, maybe doesn't see too much of that. So so the nurses will have these special. You know, sedative drips, these concoctions, oh, he gets this much propofol at midnight, and then we start the ketamine, and, and they really uh, have things uh, down to a T. Uh, and then when it's time to move the patient, you know, that's, that's a whole different world, because then it's, it's a lot less about, you know, drips and, and recording vital signs and, and the actual process of lifting these patients with all these devices, uh, getting them through these narrow hallways, putting them on a rig and driving, hopefully safely getting to the next place. Uh, definitely a different different level of resources there.
1: Yeah, I have to admit my my experience with this is not great. My I would say my my most prominent experience is in Paris when we would transport people you know out of hospital, put them on ECMO on the streets, and then take them to the hospital. And then actually in Paris they they have subspecialty care, so they, we would take them to one hospital for the cath, and then a different hospital for uh, for their ICU care. And each one of those was just. I mean, gnarly, like crazy amounts of stuff, the, the the stuff that was on top of the patient was like a mile high, and uh, all these things that you just, you don't even think about until you actually get into it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Just even the, the amount of space that you need. I mean, I, I had some ride-along time with uh, EMS crews as part of emergency medicine you know, residency, but really it was, was nothing like that. Uh, uh, you, typically, there's kind of specialty-made rigs that have extra room. They're usually branded. There's, there's a little bit of a whole uh, industry that, that goes into it. The, the folks over in Europe certainly you know, have, have us beat by, by quite a ways here. They, they hit the ground running. Um, There really isn't anything quite like that in the United States, and there's quite a bit of fragmentation uh, in in the United States system. Some centers will have their own uh, employees that will do these transport runs for them. Some centers have particular groups they work with, and and other places are, you know, this happens so frequently, they're picking up the phone and seeing who's going to help them out. So take me through this. Uh, so
1: let's say first, I'm the physician. What do I need to know when I'm handing this patient off to these people now taking them to a different hospital?
0: Yeah, uh, I think the important thing is is to, to get a feel for kind of how much ECMO experience they have and, and who else is, is, is with them. Uh, they're the absolute you know, masters of the domain when it comes to transport, you know, when it comes to getting the patient safely down. But the particular Device might might be not something they're very familiar with. I'll, some particular things, you know, ventilators, right? So, so one thing that paramedics are never going to want to do is is dislodge the ET tube. That's rule number one, number two, number three. So, they're doing you know yoga, trying to go around and beneath the the tube. Um, but you, as the ECMO specialist who just put someone on pump, you you know that you don't really need that that ventilator. You can just clamp the tube you know um it's as simple as that sometimes to facilitate easy transport Uh, and and that's not something that a that a medic or a critical care nurse is ever gonna try to do on you know without your rule
1: Mm. so and then i mean we have patients obviously if they have no a non-beating heart then i would agree that the that just clamping the et tube would be would be okay but um, on patients with a pump I guess I, I, I would think that this would be super complicated, that they're kind of um, trying to deal with now something that maybe they have a little bit of experience with. And like you just mentioned, the machine is critical, right? If they yeah. haven't seen that specific machine, yeah. then they're going to be probably lost in many realms.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think just as much as uh, any of the you know physicians uh, that that round in the hospital, maybe stop by the uh, ECMO patients. It's it's one thing to take a look, you know, but it, it's a whole nother thing, I think, to have an understanding of, of what to do when things go wrong. And uh, the, the the worst part of it is during a transport run, there's no one else around, right? So um, I, I think that the, uh, the instincts that the medics and the, the critical care nurses have are top-notch they they can figure things out they, they can macgyver things but um i think without some understanding of that circuitry it's it's going to be hard to do that successfully okay but let's get let's get
1: not even down to the nitty-gritty you're the physician in your experience what are things that maybe you've forgotten to tell them or that you feel like people need to know this is what you need yeah. to tell the transport
0: team yeah, so um, I think to to start with, you as a physician have to be able to differentiate what's necessary for this patient and what's not. You know, they're on their little bit of dobutamine, they're on a little bit of levo. You know, no, you can take all those off. Maybe do a, a single presser uh, epinephrine, for example. Anything to cut down on the complexity, anything to cut down on the amount of lines that are getting in the way and and the amount of space. Um, we would always have a little bit of discussion about someone's on, you know, inhaled flow land or inhaled nitric. Maybe that doesn't have to be there for an hour or two. And, and that's really the sort of stuff that you have to think about uh, as, as a physician. What can I eliminate for the next couple hours? You've got your paralytic drip? Maybe not. Maybe just send them off with a stick of rock uranium and, uh, and, and, you know, a little bit of fentanyl and, and you can cut quite a bit of drips out of the way and they don't have to worry about titrating those up and down. Um, so, so this is
1: this is this is good stuff. So, do you often paralyze them for
0: transport? Yeah. So I would say uh, every single time. Uh, okay. The last thing that I want, you know, is is a movement in a particularly hairy situation. Uh, so you got these these cannulas uh, coming out, and um, it definitely gets dicey. So, so uh, I think probably the first step is going to be taking the patient out of that. and uh, I'll usually come off all the sedative drips, and uh, hopefully. Hopefully the pharmacy at the hospital lets me carry a stick or two of ketamine, uh, and that can be my analgesic, that could be my sedative, uh, and, and that'll get me all the way back. Okay. All right, so we're saying, okay,
1: tell, the, tell them what they need, what they don't need. Like, do we, Can we just take off, minimize things, paralyze as potential, and obviously a sedative like ketamine to, to
0: get al- them along? Uh, what else? So, um, they're going to be checking, you know, SATs, vital signs. I think one thing that's sometimes missed uh, is this concept of north-south syndrome, especially when we're moving our VA patients. Um, in in hospital, that's, you know, something we're always monitoring off the right side, right? Um, we we know that if we if we start looking in the wrong sites, uh, we're going to get false uh, oxygenation values. Paramedics, critical care nurses, they need to know this. It's unlikely they're running blood gases, but If it's a long enough transport, uh, some companies are sophisticated enough to have ISTAT ABGs. If Mm. they're running them, they need to know that that's got to come out of the right side, right? It's got to be the right radial. Um, And and not just that, sometimes they're the ones teaching the docs when they get to the site, you know? Oh, bug gas is looking great. Well, we're checking from the wrong spot. So uh, so I think the more both sides know about this, the the better it's going to be.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. Okay, so let's see. So we've now got the patient. We're starting to move them. Tell me some fails. What are fails that happen as far as movement of the patient from your ICU bed, from your
0: ER bed into the rig? Yeah. Um, So, I mean, I think, of course, the, the number one fail, the thing everybody fears the most. In, in any sort of transport like this is, is decannulation. Uh, it's a you know, quite quite the horrifying thing, and, and there really isn't much that you can do about that. So I think that looms over our, our heads as, as epic fail number one, the thing that, that you must avoid at all costs. Uh, and so that's why I think the paralytics and that's why the actual uh, kinesiology almost of movement gets to be so important. And, and that's one of the sites where, you know, one, one of the arenas that, that those guys know so much more than we do uh, about and that's where i'm standing there and saying hey where do you want me to lift what you know you you tell me what to do uh, i certainly have no input there because uh, that's the thing you most want to avoid um there have been a few stories you know i, I mean i've spoken with a few folks from some some programs it's, it seems almost every place has um a power outage or, or something like that we we had a situation where you know we almost ran out of drips it's uh uh, it's a pretty quick ride, but in Atlanta, uh, nothing's as quick as it ought to be. The traffic is horrific. And, uh, you know, we're, we're just stuck in, in traffic lights, no lights. It, it, it's not going to change anything. So we were making arrangements to have a helicopter, uh, bring extra presser bags for us because, you know, these patients, if they're really critical, they're running through quad strength Levo, uh, within an hour or two. And if you're stuck out there, that's going to be a big problem for you.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Now, how about where you put the actual device, where you put the, the defibrillator, where do you put the monitor? Where, what's your opinion? Where are these things going in relation so, to the patient?
0: Yeah, typically, and, and my, my experience has been uh, pretty much exclusively with the cardio help, which, which helps because of its you know, smaller profile. Um, but typically, uh, some places will actually make their own stretchers that, that have a little uh, metallic kind of sidecar that you can uh, safely put that device because, again, you can't let any tension go on those, uh, the, on, on those wires. Um, but otherwise, the patient becomes a little bit of a table, you know, and unfortunately, that's, that's how it goes. So some of the drips are being laid down uh, across them. Uh, and, uh, you know, typically you've got a, a balloon pump as well, which I, I don't know, Zach, if you've ever lifted those up. I've, I've pretended to help a few times, and they're heavier in health. Uh, <laughs> and, and so you got that in the way, too. Uh, it comes as a, a struggle.
1: That's for sure. Yeah. And so in Paris, they, it's like a tower They're, They've got this thing that goes on top of the patient and, uh, it's a, just a tower of things that, that are super high. I mean, it just goes way up off the top of the patient, which I, th- I think has some advantages to being on the side of the patient because at least, you know, like in one linear direction, like I just have to make sure I don't screw anything up in
0: this area. I absolutely agree with you. Uh, the, the fact that it's kind of centralized and, and standardized, I guess, like that is, is a pretty big boon, too, because that's not what you're going to see in, in the United States um, unless unless a center has a dedicated rig that they have purchased hmm. just for this sort of run. Um, you're going sh- to show up and you're not going to really know. Most times it's not like you've been inside of there before and they're just going to have to make it work on the fly.
1: Okay, so let's let's move now on to the transport. Now, I, I, I'm yeah. kind of getting the sense here of something. You are on the rig for all of these. Is that
0: correct? Yeah, so, um, you know, when there's fellows available, when, when there's cheap, free, almost labor available, it makes sense to to send them out. Uh, I think most, most transports don't include a, a physician mm-hmm. on board. And, and so that's why it becomes even more critical, I think, for the physician at the hospital to know what they need to convey, and for the medics and the transport crews to know what they need to do if things go wrong.
1: Yeah, that's my experience. Is that most of these yeah. places, these places are not having uh, docs on board. These yeah. transports are being done by by EMS, and just like we were, um, you know, in some of the groups that we've trained, these are these are people that are not necessarily that experienced with ECMO. They don't. They're they're not like us. They have not taken care of these patients all the time. They are you know they have to they see one of these a couple every month or something like that
0: yeah I think a couple every month would be relatively high volume really yeah. uh, uh, my experience has been that when these things come through it's it's a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a scramble to try to figure out you know whose friend's cousin is a perfusionist and would be willing to help you know ride along or, or give us a phone call and, and walk us through uh, so Uh, you know, there aren't really great standards yet, I think, in the United States in terms of this sort of transport. Okay, so tell me, who do I need on the rig? I need a perfusionist? So, you know, from my experience, what you need is is competent people that know what they're doing and know about the circuit. And whatever title you have, if that's physician, if if that's RT, if that's perfusion, or if you're a paramedic that, you know, knows what what he or she's talking talking about um that's the most important thing right someone's got to know about the ecmo circuit because that's the unique piece of machinery there and and really that person shouldn't have any patient care roles so with us yeah we we typically would ride with a perfusionist especially if we were going somewhere to cannulate and put on pump uh but but i don't think that that's that common and, and i don't really think that's necessary uh Typically, you're, you know, you're not trying to change circuits out in the middle of, of transport. That's, that's just not something that you'll be able to do with or without a perfusionist. So uh, I think that title matters less. I think someone who, who's comfortable and confident to, to do the interventions uh, and, and help the, the circuit when, when needed is, is your first step.
1: Okay, so let's let's go through this. I get I'm the physician in the ICU. I put them on this backboard, or I'm sorry, this uh, you know, gurney right. that now yeah, has yeah. uh either a tower of things above them or <laughs> a side cart that they are yeah. holding these things. We are going yeah. down the hallway, we're going down the stairs, we're going into the rig. Uh, getting into the rig, I'm sure is problematic, but, uh, you know, you kind of expected complications with don't let the cannulas get out. Don't pull the ET tube, these sort of things. Now we're in the rig. We got to make sure we have enough presser. We have to know have enough, uh, whatever other meds we need to get through the thing. Hopefully we've paralyzed them with some sedation. Um, what else you said that we could lose battery power. So how do we, what do we do about that?
0: So that's, uh, that could be really problematic. Um, hopefully you've got an inverter, you know, because there's a lot of things that need to get plugged in. Uh, the patient's got that balloon pump, probably uh, they may be on an external flow land pump, or uh, uh, of course the, the circuit itself too. So, um, you know, I've heard stories of people needing to pull over and, and, and plug the thing in, you know, to a, a local business, things, things like that. You, you really got to try your best to make sure that does not happen. Um, you also have to be familiar with manual pump Um, you know on the cardi help at least it's relatively simple Uh, but but only if you've done it only if you've simulated it and and only if you're comfortable and confident enough to know when to do it I think it's a a little bit like a crike you know the the first thought typically is let's try not to do this you know let's try not to intervene is there a way we could just wait and and hope this gets better but um, but really a a power failure that's that's not going to get better and uh, someone needs to jump on that Right away and engage the uh, hand crank and, and perfuse the patient. Okay, so I think
1: this uh, this last concept that I'm thinking about it leads into the to the last thing we need to talk about, and that is that you should you should be planning ahead as far as what machines you're using so Absolutely. everyone should know that you have a cardio help or you have a tandem life or you have a, a soren or what you but uh, or whatever yeah. whatever device you have but that people should know beforehand and have practiced and learned on these machines
0: yeah, it's not a great environment to be learning for, for the first time. That's, that's for sure. And it's a long time to wait. Uh, you know, oops, we, we didn't bring, you know, we forgot the warmer, for example. Uh, that's, that's, you know, sometimes that's, that's an external component. And uh, the EMS crew made sure that they had a temperature control and the hospital doesn't have that set up. So it is really important to have that stuff all stated beforehand. Absolutely.
1: Okay. So the last thing here is for the people out there, and this is a a large number of people that I talk to who are, they're not the huge hospital. They are the small hospital and maybe they don't have CT surgeons. Maybe they don't have even an ICU, but they want to do ECPR. What is your suggestion as far as getting these programs started, getting the transport teams involved that need to be there before they ever put a person on, on pump if they can't treat them in their own hospital?
0: Yeah, I, I think for, for a hospital like that, that, that doesn't have a cardiac surgeon, you know, available in-house, uh, it, it kind of presents some unique opportunities if they can get in sync with an EMS crew that that's maybe a little more progressive or, or a little more experienced with this sort of stuff, because uh, they might actually rely on that transport crew to not just be patient transport, but be the ECMO specialist for that patient. And, you know, the, this doesn't, doesn't exist to my knowledge yet, but, but I can envision a lot of systems where it's in fact the transport that has The cardio help circuit has the devices Um, and, you know, they've done simulations, they've trained with the regional hospitals and and, and, uh, progressive emergency departments are willing to do this. Uh, And and they could be really not just transporters, but part of the entire team uh, that shows up for the cannulation helps, stabilizes a patient, gets everything ready and moves the patient on to that higher level of
1: care. Wow! Now that's an interesting concept. Yeah. So you have a a spoke and you know wheel kind of uh, system where you have a bunch of outlying hospitals, and instead of training every hospital to have their system, you train one set of medics, group of medics that are on twenty four seven or you know some combination of that. Absolutely. Uh, and they go to the hospital with the machine. That's that's uh that's
0: a pretty cool idea. I like it. Because then they're, you know, where they ha- they have the ability to travel. We, we we don't get that in the hospital. And instead of having an expensive device gathering dust, uh, if, if hospitals are willing to collaborate to play along, and and I think if the transport crews are willing to really own this process, uh, it could be a really interesting hybrid model. Cool. Okay, so that's part one. That's our interview with Leon. Now you're going to
1: hear from. Michael Broman. And you're going to hear the Swedish experience. You're going to hear a lot of different things. You're going to hear about the spoken hub uh, model. You're going to hear about transport teams that do exactly what uh, Leon is talking about. And you're going to hear some differences of how patients are managed. This is what's so awesome about things like our podcast, like education, is that we get to share and we get to realize that other people do things differently and potentially we can improve our own processes. So here you go. Part two coming up next.